Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you guys had a great Christmas break. Uh, we did. Uh, there was actually some rest involved, which I wasn't necessarily expecting, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through uh, 12 today. I'm, I'm actually going to go and read the text, and then I'll say some words of introduction. Uh, we're starting a new series today. Um, but Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 say this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and began and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and, say, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. Well, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series today, and we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7. And uh, I always kind of chuckle at the name because the reason why it's called a Sermon on the Mount is theologians said, well, he goes up on a mountainside. What, why don't we just call it Mount, Sermon on the Mount? That's literally how it got its name. And the reason why I want to go through this is, is actually for two reasons. One, I'm, it's a real aim of mine to try to give us a well-rounded biblical diet. Okay, so about a year ago, uh, when we first started this thing, a little over a year ago, we went through uh, the book of Mark looking at the life of Jesus. We are focusing mainly on the narrative events of his life, but we were looking at the life of Jesus. And then in the summer, we looked at the Old Testament. That is the part of the Bible kind of leading up to and pointing ahead to Jesus. And we kind of took a, a broad stroke approach, looking at, uh, kind of doing an Old Testament survey, looking at a lot of the main events, but some of the small, more, uh, you know, maybe not so popular events, and looking at those and understanding the Old Testament. And then this last fall, we looked at, we studied the, the book of Philippians, which is what, they, what biblical scholars call an epistle, which means a letter written by one of the early church leaders, in that case it was Paul, to one of the churches. These churches had recently, like, okay, we believe in Jesus, we're following him, and what does this look like? What does this mean? Well, that we have those epistles. And so what, you've, what I've been trying to do is kind of hit on kind of the major sections of the Bible to give us a well-rounded biblical diet. Now, it can, this is oversimplification, but the Old Testament, Jesus' life, and the epistles. So therefore, I wanted to come back and now look at Jesus again. Uh, now, I always love looking at Jesus and learning from him. Uh, last time we did it, as I mentioned, we were looking at the narrative events. So this time I thought we'd look at the Sermon on the Mount because it's his teaching work. Um, Jesus did a lot of teaching, but boy, if there's the most famous body of teaching, the most famous sermon in the Bible undoubtedly is the Sermon on the Mount. This is as central as it gets to Jesus' teaching. In other words, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like to come to Him, it's all right here. And I'm calling this uh, series uh, Upside Down Kingdom. Now, I knew when I wrote that, and sure enough, this happened on social media, that someone would think, or some of you would think, oh, he's doing a Stranger Things thing. The Upside Down, no, that's not what I'm doing. Upside Down Kingdom in this, is this idea of it's just totally unexpected. What Jesus came teaching was totally unexpected then, and it's totally unexpected now. Any of you guys heard that phrase, 
God helps those who help themselves. Um, a lot of folks, a lot of people um, think that that's a real strong biblical tenet, that that's actually in the Bible. The fact is, it's not actually in the Bible, and actually the Bible teaches, about, it teaches in the opposite direction of that. And yet, that's a thought that, that kind of summarizes what a lot of people think is in the Bible, what Jesus teaches. God is, God's blessing is on those who help themselves. God's blessing is on those who, for instance, are performing well. You know, those who are dominating their to-do lists. You know, those who have it together spiritually, or at least it seems like it. Or those who, those who are well off. Or surely God's blessing is with those who aren't struggling or those who are going through a hard time. God helps those who help themselves. What's really interesting when you look at, uh, really surprising when you look at this text is the context. Very first verse in chapter 5 here says, Now when the, the Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He's talking to the crowds and he's talking to disciples, people who are, who are saying, I'm, I'm in with you, Jesus. I'm trying to figure this out. And that word crowds is a very helpful word. Whenever we come across that in one of the gospel accounts, one of the biography accounts written of Jesus, it's very helpful in helping us understand that's everyday folks. And more specifically, that's in distinction from, for instance, the religious in crowd, who are often called the Pharisees and scribes. We'll talk a little bit about them today. These are everyday folks that, that Jesus was saying in verse 3 and then verse 10, kind of bracketing this whole thought, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. What about the people who are in the, the, the in-crowd, religiously speaking? What about those folks, the folks who have it all together? They're doing well spiritually, at least we think. The people who believe that God helps those who help themselves. What we see, what we learn is that God isn't impressed God did not come to help the self-sufficient. He did not come for those who believe God can help themselves. You know, to kind of press this thought in a little bit further and set up the context for this sermon, if you look at the very uh, uh, few verses preceding uh, what we're looking at today, uh, here's what Jesus is doing in terms of demonstrating this unexpected kingdom. Okay? Today we're going to talk about the explanation of this unexpected kingdom in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, as, as we'll see them. But before that, he's demonstrating this unexpected kingdom that sets up what we're going to be looking at today. Jesus went throughout Galilee, this is Mark 4, again leading up right to our text, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. If you're the underlining type, underline those words or just keep a mental note and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. If there's anything that we learn from this text, and we can, we can learn a lot from those few verses, it's this, that God came to help those who understand they cannot help themselves. In many of these cases, it was impossible for them to help themselves, and yet Jesus healed them. Jesus came to those who were in pure need, people who understand that they need outside help. Uh, that's who Jesus was preaching to that, then. That's who Jesus is preaching to today. He would say in different places, it's the sick who need the physician, and by the way, everybody's sick is what's implied there in a spiritual sense. 
I have come to seek and save the lost. And by the way, everybody is lost in a spiritual sense. This is what Jesus explains in the Beatitudes as he sets up this most famous of the sermons that we have in the Bible. Now, at the beginning here, I have heard it said of the Beatitudes, which is what we're looking at today, the blessed bees uh, here. Uh, I've heard it said that the Beatitudes should be thought of as the attitudes we ought to be. They're the B-attitudes. You following with me? Okay. Um, that'll make you groan and all that sort of thing. But, you know, the thought is, hey, be these things. But you know what? This is not a checklist of things to do. That's, that's, actually, that's not right. It's not a checklist of, okay, think about it. Logically, okay, if, if this is a list of things that we need to do, okay, blessed are the, those who mourn. Okay, we need to go out and mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Okay, we need to figure out how to be persecuted. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Actually, it's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not giving good advice for how to be blessed by God. He is giving good news for how God came to bless. And that's what we look at today here in, in this, in this uh, text. So what I want to do is look first at the first four Beatitudes, all of which are showing how we come to God. They're all about our spiritual uh, brokenness apart from Him. Okay, so that'll be up on the screen. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So real quickly, the word blessed uh, can be translated uh, quite right as happy. So it could be happy are. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty straightforward translation. But you notice that our translators didn't do that. Why not? Well, it's because the word has a little bit richer sense, a little bit deeper meaning than that. And that has, it has the idea of not just happiness, but God's favor, God's, love, God, God's blessing is upon you. So he's saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, immediately we see here, it's unexpected. Blessed are the poor. Poor? Poverty? How is that? How it works. I thought everything's about more. I thought everything's about acquiring. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. Daft Punk. Well, that's not quite right, but... Isn't that how it works? Well, Jesus is talking about uh, our, our spiritual bankruptcy. He says it all starts with the understanding that we are broken, that we are spiritually bankrupt. We have no spiritual assets to bring before God. We have no chips that we've earned or we've gained or however we say, God, I'm cashing in. I deserve. You know, give me. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. That's kind of an interesting one, isn't it? Happy are those who are unhappy. Like, well, how, how does that, how's that making sense? Um, Again, he's talking about our spiritual state. He's not, he's not talking about physical bereavement here. He's talking about our spiritual state. These all build on themselves. Um, he's saying, blessed are those who deep, dis- deep down are dissatisfied with the way things are, particularly when it comes to how humankind is in its state. He's talking about sin. He's talking about those who are just like, things are off. Things are wrong. Things are not as they were supposed to be. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard it, you know, when we think about what sin is, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, word just kind of thrown out there. Sin is essentially saying, I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do apart from you, God. Uh, I'm going I'm to do my own thing. And I've heard it described this way, this illustration I thought was, was interesting. Um, it, it would be like as if I, I took my three-year-old to Central and Castro there where the, the cars are zipping past, and I was holding my, my three-year-old's hand, and I, well, I, I went to, I asked her to hold, if I can hold your hand, and she just says, no, um, which isn't a rare event, actually, um, but hopefully in this situation it would be, she says, no, and she just darts off into the street, and you know, the, the, the worst thing happens. Now, sin is this idea of, not that it's just bad that, you know, 
she, she doesn't take my hand. And not that she's just bad for the consequences of the scary thing that, that, that would happen in that situation, but sin is more the heart of just saying, you know, I don't know. Forget you. When our Father is thinking about us, caring for us, designed us, knows us, loves us, and wants the best for us, and when we mourn that that general state of things, uh, it, we, it, it saddens us. I've heard it described this way. There's a, there's a Christian speaker uh, who was cooking dinner in her, in her uh, kitchen, and the, the news was playing on the television in the living room where her little three-year-old daughter was playing, three-year-old, I guess today's three-year-old illustrations. But three-year-old was playing, in the, in, in, and she was just kind of mindlessly doing you know, her, her thing. Well, on the news was what's typically on the news, just horrors happening around the world. Uh, folks just, you know, bloody and all that sort of thing just on the screen. She's just kind of whipping her, her thing up. And the three-year-old daughter got freaked out, came running, Mommy, Mommy, look! Why is that happening? Where are their mommies? Is what she said. Um, and and this, this, this speaker, she, she was kind of hit with, oh my goodness, we become so callous to the state of affairs of how things are. And where, it's just like, where's the mourning? Like a three-year-old understands that things aren't right. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We're, if, if we understand, blessed are those who mourn. Um, Romans 8 in the Bible talks about how we're just, we're groaning on the inside. Things aren't the way creation, the way mankind cre- treats creation, the way creation is affected, all that sort of stuff is not, not the way it, it, it makes us mourn. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, unexpected. The meek inherit the earth? I thought it was those who pushed to get ahead. I thought it was those who, who really, you know, puff out their chests and say, what's, what, what's up? And look at me and all those sorts of stuff. How, aren't they the ones inheriting the earth? Again, this is, this is really unexpected. And Jesus, again, is talking about our spiritual state. Meekness here, it carries on, from the, it builds from the first two Beatitudes. It's not a reference to weakness. It's not, it's not saying you're, you're a pushover. You know, you're just this weak person who just, you know, everybody rolls over. Um, it's talking about humility. And it's talking about humility, especially when you think about building off of blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. It's saying, okay, I realize that the problem is beyond me. I realize that there's a problem in the world that makes me mourn. And then the meekness part says, and I realize that the problem is here. Uh, there was a guy named uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, a great mind, a great writer in the early 20th century. And the London Times was doing this new series back then where they asked all of the great writers at the time to submit a response to this question. What is the problem in the universe? Imagine being asked that question and asking to respond to that and it being published in the, in the Times. So uh, G.K. Chesterton got that. And all he did was simply send in a one-line response. G.K. Chesterton is uh, a person who understood Jesus' unexpected kingdom. He was one who was poor in spirit. He was one who mourns. Chesterton was somebody who was, was meek. And therefore, here's what he wrote. The problem in the universe is me, signed G.K. Chesterton. I think that is what Jesus is getting at here in the Beatitudes. Actually, to kind of bring this all together, these first three, I think there's a parable that Jesus tells that that kind of captures this dynamic. In Luke 18, uh, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Hopefully, this this could be on your screen. Good. And by the way, let's see how this is set up. Who are confident in their own righteousness. God helps those who help themselves. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple 
to pray. One, a Pharisee. That's the guy in the religious in crowd. And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Listen to this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. What's the Pharisee saying? He's saying, God bless me because I deserve it. Uh, I've done my part. I have it all together. I expect I deserve your blessing. But here's the unexpected part. Jesus goes on. But the tax collector stood at distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's how Jesus concludes. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, he's describing a heart posture like this tax collector, somebody who can't even look up to heaven before God in terms of his understanding of his spiritual state, beating his breast and just saying, I am just completely undeserving. I have nothing to prove. And I think it's very helpful to understand that Jesus is telling, you know, giving a picture of this tax collector in parallel to this picture of the guy who's in the religious crowd, the guy who believes God essentially helps those who help themselves. Jesus is basically saying to this guy, you're blind to the fact that you yourself are completely dependent on me. Uh, You need me desperately. Um, There's this article that Cindy sent me this week that as I was reading it, I like, Every, like, as I was reading it, every paragraph I had to be like, is this real? Like, or is this fake news? Like, is this, are we April 1st already? Like, what is going on? It was called, and it's kind of a cheeky title, but it's called um, The Second Coming of Russell Brand. You guys know Russell Brand, actor, comedian? Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting about very smart, high intellect. Comedians are smart, they're, they're in, their IQ is real high. Uh, but uh, real smart. Um, not really the kind of guy you think of in terms of poor in spirit. Uh, you, know, you know, I mean, if, if anything, he, you know, the, he's just kind of over-the-top irreverent, um, more often crass than not. I, I, I don't know fully. I think, you know, he's kind of outspoken in terms of being against such things, uh, in, terms of, in terms of like Christianity and the like. Um, but the second coming of Russell Brand, the article starts by him saying, I, I, it's my personal believing, belief that Jesus, Jesus Christ's teachings are more relevant than today than ever. And so I'm reading this article, I'm like, what am I reading? Russell Brand? Like, what is going on? And it shares a little bit of the story. I can't go, go into all of it, but he, uh, if you, you know anything about Russell Brand, you, it won't surprise you that he had like a lot of substance abuse and many substances and all that sort of stuff. But he kind of hit a low, and someone sent him to rehab, and this rehab h- ended up being the 12-step program. Are you guys familiar with that? Which is actually based on, on Christian principles. It used to be very overtly Christian, all the wording very overtly Christian. Now they've kind of changed it up a little bit to kind of broaden it and that sort of thing. But it's, it's funny. It's still very much kind of, it's Christian. Uh, and Russell Brand even was talking about about that. He's like, ah, this religious stuff. And, uh, but the first three steps, right? the first few steps in the 12-step program are essentially these first three Beatitudes. Like, boy, we are, we are helpless apart from outside help, from God's help and God's care. We can't do this. And so he's first wrestling through this and just kind of a, like, he's just like, I'm not into this sort of thing. But through the process, he started looking actually more into a lots, of, lots of religions, including Jesus. And he came to the conclusion that, oh my goodness, what Jesus is teaching Boy, we need that, and not only in terms of addiction, but in terms of higher level, in terms of all, and not just, and I'm just like, what is happening? Russell Brand, 
Um, it wasn't clear whether or not he's become Christian. I, I, it wasn't quite uh, was clear from that article. But I, I tell you, he's moving towards, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Um, and he's even to the point of saying he's, been, he's grateful for the path that he was on to help him understand, uh, you know, even the hard, hardships that he had. Uh, the fourth beatitude continues this powerful trajectory uh, bringing it to a head, in my humble opinion, it says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, as I was studying this, I was asking myself this question. Whose righteousness is to be thirst for and hungered for? You know, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it other people's righteousness that we're to thirst for and hunger for? Which I think, frankly, that's often how it works practically. Okay, I really need to get, by the way, righteousness just means being right with God, um, just, you know, being untainted with, with, with sin and just, 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 just living a, a good, morally, a holy life. Um, oftentimes, we, we can come to this and say, oh, I need to figure out other people's righteousness. I need to figure out those folks. Um, but that's, that's self-righteousness, isn't it? Uh, that's, and, and sadly, that's why a lot of people are leaving the church or w- not wanting to have anything to do with the church to begin with in America in greater numbers than ever before is because of self-righteousness. It's like, okay, I really hunger and thirst for these people's right. You just need to get your act figured out. That's not what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus saying he's, he's talking about our own righteousness, hunger and thirst for that? Now, that seems to be a little bit more on par with what Jesus is saying, especially in line with you know, poor in spirit. Those who are mourning about the state of things, the sins there, that, that, we are, that we are meek. That seems to make more sense. But then I was thinking, how does that make sense with poor in spirit? Basically saying we are completely spiritually bankrupt, but we're all supposed to become spiritually more righteous. Like how Even that misses the mark. And so as I was thinking about it and then confirming in my studies, what Jesus is talking about here is seeking first, thirsting, thirsting and, and hungering for His righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And of course, that is what the Bible is about from cover to cover. From cover to cover, the Bible is basically saying what the Beatitudes are saying here, and that is no one is righteous. Not one. In fact, if we really get down to it, the Bible says we're all desperately unrighteous. We all desperately missed the mark. Um, And yet Jesus came. This is the good news. This is the gospel of this unexpected kingdom to give us his righteousness, to help those who cannot help themselves and who understand this. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is he went to die and and pay the penalty that we deserve, that in his death we can receive forgiveness of sins and his righteousness, and when he rose again to life, we can have we have life in his name. Listen to how 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness we see, Christ's righteousness. In us and around us, that is what, you know, the posture of poor in spirit, the posture of mourning and meekness, of humility, uh, moves us towards. It's, it's His righteousness, something that's not earned but received and is freely available to you even today. The last four Beatitudes build from, from the first. If the first four are how we come to God, the second four are how we are changed as a result of what God has done for us in Jesus. 
uh, to kind of go through these a little bit more quickly. Uh, blessed are the merciful, blessed, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. What he's saying here is with this unexpected kingdom, this unexpected good news that Jesus gives us, the effects it's going to have on you is going to be unexpected. It's going to be unexpected in the world because the world functions differently, does it not? I mean, instead of mercy, there's ruthlessness. And there's not so much purity, but deceitfulness. And instead of peacemaking, there's a lot of warring. But Jesus came to announce to the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, when you live the way he calls you to, and that might not be the way the world says, oh, that's the way it goes, but it'll be in the opposite direction. It's unexpected. When you do that, you win in the kingdom of God. And you are actually happy. God's unexpected, undeserving blessing has been brought to you and through you to others. I'm currently reading a biography on William Wilberforce. If, if you know him, he's an Englishman who lived in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, kind of straddling the two. And he was a guy who was born into much privilege. I mean, high intellect, charming charisma, lots of family connections, could do anything he wanted. Went early on into the uh, uh, career in uh, politics. Actually, he was elected at the youngest age possible, the age of 22, two weeks after his birthday. He's just a phenomenal guy, very gifted. And the first part of his life is just him using all of that for himself. He was a part of like these, something like five of these prestigious social clubs at the time where there was gambling and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then one summer, his mom got uh, ill, and they decided to take her uh, to the French Riviera uh, for warmer pastures. I guess that's what you do back then when you're really wealthy. I mean, it would take weeks and weeks just to get there by coach, right? And so uh, William was going to drive the coach for them to get there. And so he had to figure out who was going to be his traveling companion. They had the funds to kind of like subsidize, subsidize who that, you know, person who was going to go with them. And it was imperative that he found somebody who was entertaining. Remember, they didn't have iPods back then. They just, whoever he was going to be traveling with was like, that was going to make or break his trip. He asked one guy. That guy couldn't make it. He's like a doctor, had things to do. Um, but this other guy, this old, uh, this old childhood friend that he had lost uh, contact with for a long time and then kind of came back into his life, uh, had a few conversations with him. He's like, oh, this guy's, this guy's really, really smart. We can engage in, in, in intellectual conversations. He's funny. And all this, sort of, all this is like in his diary, that, that sort of thing. And journal, journal, guys do journals. Um, <laughs> anyways, so, so they, they, they off they set on this like several week uh, expedition. And uh, uh, the guy wasn't super overt about it, but it turns out this guy was a devout Christian. And so eventually that, kind of, that topic comes up. And what happens is at first, uh, Wilbur first is just totally dismissive about it. He's just kind of like, well, you believe that? Like, why? Well, um, but uh, Wilberforce's credit, he, he eventually starts, I mean, the guy's like, yeah, I believe it. And Wilberforce and he start to get into like a, a, an engaging dialogue. And Wilberforce is coming at him with objections. And, well, how could this be? And how could that be? By the end of these several weeks, Wilberforce was a Christian. And he was kind of like deer in the headlights, like shaken up. Like, what in the world just happened? Like, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross historically and that he rose from the dead and I got to live my life like that. Like, he's just like absolutely convinced that, that was true and like trying to figure out what this is going to mean because he's absolutely, he's just deer in headlights. Like, what, what do I do? And he describes the conversion process, as he puts it, for, for about, it was about a one to two year period for him. 
And he was just trying to figure out, okay, one of the big questions he had early on was, well, do I remain in politics? Like, is that, he was thinking, maybe I should sell everything and go live in a, as a monk or something, like in a monastery. Um, and so he actually went and he visited uh, a pastor in secret, uh, actually a famous pastor, a guy named John Newton, the guy who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, went and visited him and uh, asked John Newton this question. He's like, should I remain in politics? Thinking that the guy was going to say, yeah, go off and be in monastery or whatever. And John Newton said, I don't know, why would, why would you think about leaving politics? But maybe God has brought you to politics for such a time as this, quoting Esther 4, which we looked at over the summer in our Old Testament survey. And so Wilberforce was just kind of figuring this out, thinking about this. And if you know Wilberforce's story, he is basically single-handedly credited of ending the slave trade in Europe. And it was from this moment that he just kind of went again to his journal, and he was just in prayer and just saying, God, if, if... if this is what you've done for me, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, thirsting, hungering for righteousness, what are you calling me to do? What, what am I to do with what you've given me? And he came to the conclusion, okay, this is the task at hand. And you know what? If you read, I mean, we look back on this in hindsight, like, oh yeah, of course he did that. And he, he knew at the time, as he was thinking about this, praying through, he was coming to this conclusion that it was going to be an uphill of uphill battles. Like so much opposition was going to come at him, and so much opposition did come at him, but he constantly always wrote in his, di- uh, wrote in his thing saying, God, you've got to do this. If you're not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. And that was not just a spiritualism. He believed that to his core, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, thirsting after Christ's righteousness himself and around. And you know what's amazing about Wilberforce's life? He could have gone out there with that anti-slavery message of saying, you guys are idiots, but he loved his enemies, which stay tuned, that's later in the Sermon on the Mount. He loved his enemies. He came with a pro-human life, like dignity, sanctity of life, saying, guys, this is what this is about. And he also had this uphill battle of not just like passing some legislation, of changing the culture. And he did that through love and, 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 and positive pointing towards Christ and his values. And I'm just amazed at, like, the, the, at, what, at what God did through, through him and his example, what that means in terms of the text that we're thinking about today. This same transformative power, is in the, it, that's the gospel. It transforms us from the inside out. And when we live out our calling with the recognition that though we are not enough, but Jesus is, he can and does work powerfully in the spheres we are placed in. Uh, One more thought before we we, uh, wrap things up. Uh, He does say it will lead to persecution. Um, The last beatitude here, it will lead to persecution. Now, here in the U.S., we don't we don't deal with the persecution that you know exists around the world for many Christian followers. Um, life and death. Um, but Jesus is saying in this unexpected kingdom, first of all, that's not to be unexpected, but when that does happen, God's kingdom is, is moving forward. And, and we're seeing that. Um, we, you and I, we don't, we don't face that. But I, I find it helpful, at least practically, uh, to, to see that he says, blessed are those uh, who, when people insult you, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, I think that's more what we probably face in the Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley, just let's be real about it, is not the most like, you know, pro-Christian area and all that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, I mean, if you're living out your faith, you're going to be persecuted. Why would you believe that? 
You believe, that, that sort of thing, which you guys know. Uh, family members are going to say, why, why would you, why, are you... But I would just mention that it, it, that's part of William Wilberforce's story. Russell Brand, I don't know where he's at, but that's part of his story in terms of him moving in that dial. It's part of a lot of our stories, actually. We were saying, well, and so the calling here is to live out in Jesus. Don't be, unex- don't, it, it's, don't not expect it to happen. It will happen. Uh, persecution is part of the deal. So what do, we, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Get your checklist out and you start to, no, no, no. We receive it. We receive it. We receive it. This is what God has come to do for us. I think uh, the, the best way to kind of capture this, and I'll end with this, with this story, is the most famous of all of the, the parables, the prodigal sons. It's usually called the prodigal son, but I like to add the plural there. Um, the first son, actually, in setting up this, this, this parable, Jesus, this is Luke 15, if you want to check it out later, um, Jesus is talking to both tax collectors and Pharisees. So again, there's this, those two crowds he tells a story of about how one son goes and he asks the father for his inheritance early, which was just utterly disrespectful in any culture, but especially back then. And the unexpected thing there is the father says, okay, gives him his inheritance early. The guy goes off and he lives a fast life, lives it up all for himself, doing his own thing, gets to the end of that pretty quickly and is just like, boy, it, man, this is, just, this is no good. This is not the life that is fulfilling. This is, there's a lot of emptiness here. And so he decides, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back. It is, it is low state. I'm going to go back. And sure, like, I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness and ask my father, can you at least, can you take me back as a servant? Because being a servant is way better than anything else that I've, uh, that I've gotten myself into. And so he's poor in spirit. He's mourning. He's, he's meek. He goes back to his father, and if you know the story, uh, he starts to get out his little apology, and before he gets out two cents of it, the father smothers him with love, just, just smothers him with a hug, starts putting rings on his hand, you know, uh, kills the fattened calf, prime rib uh, for this guy, um, and they, they throw a party. And then there's the other son, the older brother, who's ticked off. Father, why would, you, why would you do this for this, this guy? He doesn't even call him, call him his, his brother. He's like, why? like I, all my life I've been doing good and right by you, and you've never even given me like one calf to like have, throw a party with my buddy. He's like, what's up? And the father goes to him and he says, son, don't you realize that you're always with me? Everything I have is yours, but would you rejoice? Come into this party. Rejoice. Your brother who is dead is alive again, and your brother who is lost has been found. And I think that is the gospel. That is the center of what Jesus is teaching here and over and over again, and that is how it is to be received. If you are one who has either never come to God before or that you, you've, you've run away from Him, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those, those who are meek, those who want to seek and thirst after His righteousness. You, come to Him, and, and, and God will just smother you. He loves you. He can't wait for you to come back. No, the church walls won't fall down on you. He loves you. And then if you've been a believer for any length of time, long length of time, whatever, it's always about the gospel. It's always about the Father's initiated love for us, and it can only be received. 
His initiated love in sending Jesus. That is the gospel life. Friends, we do not graduate from the gospel. But we always go back to it. We do not say, hey, I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, and I received that, eternal life, whoop de you know, I'm not, excuse me, I shouldn't be irreverent about that. Wonderful. Now I'm moving on to Christianity 2.0. I'm going to work on this, I'm going to work on, that's not how it works. We go back, we go deeper into understanding God's love for us, and from the inside out, not a to-do list, but an inside out receiving it, we become, by his working in us, the people he's called us to be. And so we come back to it. We either come to it for the first time or we always come back to it. And do you see, friends, how that keeps us, keeps the church from becoming self-righteous? And when we are self-righteous, there's, there's a solution to that. It's to say, poor spirit, I'm bankrupt. It's to go back. That is our calling as a church, to be poor in spirit, to be mourning, to be meek, and because of His righteousness, to be changed and transformed into the people He's called us to be in this unexpected kingdom of His. Let's pray.